Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Begin in verse 1 in just a moment, Matthew 17. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name's Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here, and we are very grateful you're with us. If you are just, if this is your first time here, or maybe you've come here one or two or three times and you finally feel safe enough to admit you're here as a visitor, we would love to meet you. If you would go out into our foyer at the conclusion of the services today and go to our Welcome Center and introduce yourself, we have a, uh, a little a gift we'd like to give you that you can use at our cafe as a as just a treat on us, because we'd like to get to know why you're here, how we can serve you, how we can help you in your journey with Jesus. So uh, when you feel safe enough to let us know you're here, we'd love to meet you and become acquainted with you in your journey and see how we can work together uh, toward becoming more like Jesus. And so we're glad you're a part of that. Uh, We're also in this lengthy series through the Gospels, taking Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and bringing them together in a chronological way, telling the story of Jesus to the best we can imagine it from those four authors in the stories of Jesus. Uh, Last week, Michael DeFazio and I sat on this stage and we talked to you about a passage of scripture where Jesus began to do a miracle on a blind man and it was a partial miracle, partially effective. He could see but not see clearly. And we talked about what that might mean. Did Jesus fail? Was his power diminished that day? Did he have a bad healing day? Or was it a metaphor toward the disciples about how they were partially seeing who he was but they weren't understanding him? And then there was a moment between Peter and Jesus where Jesus talked about the suffering he would do as a Messiah, that if they saw him for who he was, there would be suffering. And Peter tried to stop it, and Jesus corrected him, showing that he had partial sight too. And Jesus showed Peter that he wasn't seeing him for who he was, that suffering would be a part of the way God redeems the world. That helps us set up today this conversation toward discipleship about how we need to see Jesus more fully And how we should devote ourselves toward that end. So let's read our text today. Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Jesus' life coming down off of this mountaintop will only become darker. It's part of the narrative and storyline of Jesus' life. We would expect that a king, when he's coronated, and God above all says, this is my son, that there would be great moments of exultation to follow, but there are not. If you haven't been able to be with us this entire journey, in the 70-some weeks that we've covered the Gospels and, and preaching the life of Jesus, I want you to remember that that we've defined five movements in the life of Jesus, five uh, periods of time that display the arc of his life. In fact, the graphic behind me shows the highs and lows of the journey of the life of Jesus. 
it began with the first phase called the arrival, with the prophecies and the birth of Jesus, the incarnation. And then it was met with obscurity, that period of time in which Jesus was just a boy growing up in Israel, being raised by his parents and learning the Torah and going to school and learning all the things and apprenticing with his father. And we called that the obscurity, where he was here, but he, it wasn't, people weren't aware he was here. And then we went to the period of recognition. And this is the period by which the miracles and the teachings began to draw crowds and people began to understand this was not just a mere teacher. This was somebody completely different, someone from God. And then we entered into the larger phase of his life called the revolution. And this is where Jesus began to present things that confronted religion in the world and confronted false perceptions of who God was. But before we become arrogant in understanding the revolution, sometimes the revolution wasn't against the religious enemies, if you will. Sometimes the revolution was toward his own disciples. And this is one of those particular texts where Jesus challenges his own disciples to see him in a way that they've never seen him before. And he reveals something about himself. I'd like to break this teaching into three pieces. But I'm going to forewarn you today that the first two pieces are heavy in theology. So there's a lot of obscure ideas we're going to be talking about with some big picture items. And then if you can hang with me, when we get to the third spot, you and I will know what to do with it. The first two left on their own would be great information, but without the impact of how it affects our lives and what we're to do with this transfiguration, it'll simply just be one of the neat moments in Scripture that we wish we would have seen. And I want us to open our eyes and see it for ourselves. So let's begin. The transfiguration tells us who he really is. Remember last week, as Michael taught us well, that we need to have our eyes open to what he's revealing to us, not what we want him to be. And in light of that, I want to take you, now there's a, there's a false presumption in America, especially when you hear Christians talk, that they don't spend a lot of time understanding the Old Testament because, you know, we're a New Testament people and we live under a new covenant and salvation is depicted in the New Testament and I'm going to tell you if that's how you feel, stop. Because you really won't be able to understand what the New Testament covenant is without respect for the Old Testament covenant. They cannot be separated. That the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament and how he's displaying himself is interconnected throughout all of it. So let me explain what I mean. If you would, I'm not going to ask you to turn to your Bibles, but if you're a note taker, you might want to write this passage down. Exodus chapter 24 and following. Because in Exodus chapter 24, I want to take you to the Old Testament where God had taken the Israelites out of Egypt and he was taking them to Mount Sinai where he was going to give them the law. The best of my math can indicate this was a three-month journey from Egypt to Mount Sinai. Unfortunately, they would take 39 years and nine months after this visit because they're stubborn. But God led them to Mount Sinai and he gave Moses the law. And when Moses went on the mountain, God told him something very specific. He said, I'm going to meet you on this mountain, but don't let anybody else put their foot on this holy ground. He said, even if one of your animals, one of your dogs runs up the hill chasing a rabbit and it touches the hill while I'm on it, it will die. He's given the gravity of his presence. And he invites Moses to the mountain. And from a distance, looking up to the mountain, it was covered with this big mist or this large uh, cloud. And God meets Moses on this mountain. And God begins to speak to Moses. 
And Moses does this awesome thing because he, he hears all of, he sees God's power. He saw the parting of the Red Sea. He saw the manna. He saw what God was doing. But then he got in the presence of God. And this is such a transition for all of us. He got over the gimmick part and he wanted to see God himself. He wanted, he wanted to go deeper into who God was, not just what God could do. And oh, I pray for this church starting with myself and everyone in here today that's hearing my voice, that we would get over the gimmicks of Christianity and want God more than that. That we just want to see him. And Moses says to God, can I see you? And God's like, nah. Because if you saw me, you'd die. That's weird. That's one of those moments like, well, why couldn't you just let him see you? In fact, God says to him, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in a shelter. I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock and I'm going to cover you with my hand and I'm going to pass by you and I'm going to let you see just a part of my back. And it was such an altering experience to Moses that when he came down the mountain, if you've seen Charlton Heston, he got tanned and his hair went white, right? <laughs> so as bad as they messed it up, at least they were trying to depict that he was physically altered by seeing that much of God. So much so that he, because he had such this tan or this glow, he started wearing a veil. I don't know how long he wore it. He may have wore it the rest of his life, but he wore a veil because people were so enamored by how he'd physically changed that they weren't hearing what he was saying. If you take that snapshot and you come to the Mount of Transfiguration, can you see the similarities? There's God, there's the voice, there's a command, and people are altered. Radiance. Where Moses' face reflected the glory of God, when we come to this mountain, Jesus isn't reflecting the glory of God, he's displaying it. You see, when we understand the Old Testament foreshadowing the Mount of Transfiguration, we see Moses receiving the law, and we see Jesus meeting with who? Moses and Elijah. So there's God's voice, there's Moses, there's radiant power, there's glory, there's direction, there's holy ground. And when we start to put this together, we see that Moses came down and he reflected the glory of God, but in this moment, Jesus was displaying it. It doesn't say his face reflected. It said it, this glory came out of him. What are we to learn about who he is? Verse 2, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. He changed. He was revealing something about himself. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. This is not a like Moses experience. This is completely different, and Moses got to see it. Moses got to see, oh, this is what God, whoops, this is what God looks like? Moses said, God, can I see you? And God's like, nah, man, it, you die. I'll explain what that means in a moment. See, if you want to see God, if you want to peek behind the curtain, if you want to go through the mist and get to the other side, if you want to see the face of God, it's really this simple. Look at Jesus. Because he's not just junior God on internship. He's like, I'm him. This is when he would say in the Gospel of John seven times, I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am, I am. Moses said, who am I supposed to say is sending me? I am. I'm the God who makes things happen. So you want to look at the transfiguration. If you really want your eyes to be open and not be partially healed, but open to all of it, see who he really is, and you'll see God. 
Second, the transfiguration tells us what he came to do. When the glory of God appears in the Old Testament, why is it always threatening? Why when Isaiah comes and sees in a vision, not actually God, but he sees a vision of the glory of God, why does he cry out, I'm undone? I'm going to die. This is too big, too much. I can't take it. Why when Job is having a debate with God and he, be, he sees a glimpse of the glory of God, why does he say the words, I despise myself and repent? What is it about God's glory that crushes us? You see, if you were to look directly into the sun for a number of minutes without blinking, you would lose your eyesight. Because the glory of the sun in all of its radiance would be too much for you to handle. A comedian that I get a kick out of every now and then is a guy named John Mulaney, and he said that when he was growing up, one of the things that concerned him most of all that he thought would be a big problem when he became an adult was quicksand. He said because every movie he ever saw, quicksand was an issue you needed to learn how to deal with. Now, I, well, the minute I heard that, what made me laugh was I actually had a strategy. Did you? I knew that when I went in the quicksand, get on my belly and float as much as possible or look for the ever-present vine that saved Tarzan. (laughs) And I also had another fear, if I want to be honest with you. I did grow up fearing that one day an anvil would fall out of the sky, dropped by Wile E. Coyote, and kill me. Well, it wouldn't kill me. It would make me accordion style. My body would bend and fold, and I would make noises as I walked. I'd live because he always did, but you get the point. It didn't turn out to be a reality. What is the reference I'm drawing for you? The weight of God's glory is what we should fear. Being one of four boys, the three of us older ones, my little brother was so much younger, six years younger than the rest of us, that minimally, six years younger, uh, I'm not a triplet. But anyway, he was young enough that I don't remember him participating in this, but I remember the three older of us looking at each other, looking at my dad and thinking, we got him. And we would start wrestling with my dad. We'd jump on him and we'd try to pin him. And the rule was always if we could pin him, he bought ice cream. He never bought ice cream. (laughs) We would be wrestling with my dad and he'd let one shoulder get down and then he'd flip one of us clear across the room into a couch or a chair. And and then he did the worst thing ever. He'd pin you down and pop your toes. (laughs) Pop the knuckles on your toes. I have adopted that theory and love it. (laughs) My boys hate it and they'll do it to my grandchildren. But anyway... We would be wrestling, and I remember one time in particular, because I don't know how it's happened, but he was always nicer to me because I was the baby, and he would just beat Steve to death because Steve was the tough, you know, middle school kid who was mouthing the most, and so he would get us, but somehow I got in the middle, and my dad just, my dad put the weight of his glory on us. Let me explain. He got us all three pinned down on our backs, and then he laid down on top of us. Now, I always used to be enamored by my dad's wallet, so like during church, if I got bored, I'd take my dad's wallet and just go through it. And he would let me because I was quiet. And I always remember that his license, driver's license, said he was six foot tall, 212 pounds. I was always mesmerized. That that weight never changed as he got larger, but it was always 212 pounds. (laughs) So my father lies. But, But he wasn't 212 pounds that day that he laid on all three boys. And we called it the whale because... He would lay on us and throw his arms back and his legs up in the air and put all of his belly weight on us. I saw Jesus that day. (laughs) I thought my life was over. I was squealing like a pig. Get off, get off, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Which every time Braden does that, when I pin him on the ground, I laugh. I go, you couldn't say you can't breathe if you could 
not breathe. <laughs> My dad put the weight of his glory on. What is glory? It's weightiness. It's something so much bigger, it crushes us. It's not a penalty. God's not like, don't you dare look at me, and if you do, I will smite you. No, the weight of God's glory is when Isaiah saw it, he thought, I'm not him. When Job was debating God and God revealed his glory, Job said, I have no right to question him. When we say to God, show me your glory, God's like, no, you don't understand. You can't handle it. It's much bigger than you. It's the anvil dropping out of the sky. If it hits you, its weight, its power, its presence is bigger than you can handle. Church, are you with me? Does this make sense? All joking aside and being playful, I'm trying to create a word picture for you to understand that when God says you can't see my glory, it's not because he doesn't want you to see his glory. It's if you did, it would tell you you're not him. Your sin would be exposed. And everything you've done to try to debate God or fight with God or equal yourself to God would prove so futile you'd be destroyed. It's like he's the man and I'm not. And the glory of God, when we get Jesus right, Notice what happened. When we get Jesus right, Peter says, Lord, if you wish, I'd, I will put up three shelters. And I used to kind of make fun of this. I used to think, you know, isn't this Peter being more American, right? If you've ever been to the Holy Land, and I, and I hope one day you'll go with us when we take a trip, when you go to the Holy Land, it's kind of irritating because over historic sites, they build buildings, could you imagine if we tried to build buildings at Gettysburg? Our country would lose its mind. No, you leave that wide open so we can try to picture what it was like when the battle took place there. But they build buildings on it because land is so sparse and they wanted to protect it. And I, I was used to always make fun of Peter in my mind thinking that Peter wanted to build an amusement park where Jesus was transfigured because that's what we Americans would do. And then I was corrected in my understanding. I think what Peter may have been doing here, and I believe this is more accurate, Peter understood that whenever the glory of God appeared on earth, there was a tent, the tabernacle, God's traveling home in the wilderness. There was a big tent, and inside of it was a small tent, and that small tent was the Holy of Holies, and that's where the presence of God came, and nobody could see that, so everybody gathered around it in the tent of meeting, but you didn't go into the Holy of Holies because you would die. And I think Peter may have been saying when Jesus revealed the glory of God that he said, we need to protect ourselves from this. And then a voice came down and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Look what happened. While he was speaking, a bright cloud enveloped him. Oh, wait, the cloud from Exodus 24 came down and came over Jesus, Elijah, Moses, and the three, James, John, and Peter. Remember, nobody could go on the mountain but Moses, but on this mountain, the cloud came down and enveloped them. And then a voice said something. And when the disciples heard this, verse 6, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. Not ambitious, not amused, terrified. Why? Because they knew that the presence of God appearing in that moment, they weren't worthy. Verse 7, Jesus came and touched them. Get up. Listen to these words, church. Don't be afraid. When someone tells you not to be afraid, it's because you have a reason to be what? You don't have to tell anybody who's having a great day. I don't have to walk in on a Monday morning to someone walk in their office who's having a cup of coffee and, and doing their devotional. Don't be afraid and walk away. That's kind of dumb. 
Unless I got a pink slip in my hand, I probably shouldn't do that. But if I walk in and I say, don't be afraid, someone's like, you knew, didn't you? Peter, Jesus said, don't be afraid, because he knew they were. Because the glory of God had descended, but they thought it was the cloud. They didn't understand it was him. And when they looked up, verse 8, they saw no one except Jesus. What does that tell you? Moses, Elijah, what a powerful moment, what a cool thing. And Jesus said, no, no, I remain. The glory of God is still here. But it wasn't, it wasn't that awe, breathtaking, awe-inspiring glory. It wasn't the, notice that the glory of Jesus, that because he lost his beauty and he lost his power and he gave all of those things up that should have brought us to terror, he came in the form of a baby. He was incarnated into this world. He lived among us as a man. He gave up all the best parts of heaven to take on the worst parts of earth. He did all of that so we could see God and he could protect us. They didn't need a shelter because Jesus was the shelter. Like Moses was hidden in the mountain in the cleft of a rock and disguised by God's hand, Jesus' presence on the Mount of Transfiguration was a shelter they needed for the glory of God to become theirs and not a threat to them. When Jesus went to the cross on behalf of you and I, he made the glory of God a beautiful thing and no longer a threatening thing because he wore it all himself. Jesus would say in John 17, Father, I want... I want those you have given me to be with me and to see my glory, the glory you've given me. But it was a diminished glory, yet an effective one. So I told you the first two pieces would be a lot of theology, right? A lot of concepts about the weight of glory and what does this mean and who Jesus is. This moment reveals who he is and what he came to do. Now let's get to, let's get to the part where we have to open our eyes and see fully. The transfiguration tells us how we should respond to him. See, in verse 5, a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So there's three parts I want to give you here today. The first one is, the word listen actually comes from the Greek word to obey. So let's start with that. When we understand the glory of Jesus, instead of cowering and fearing for our lives, God has asked us to do something different, to respectfully obey. Not to run away and cry out, I'm undone, but to realize that he could make us undone, but he's chosen not to. So obey him. Open our eyes fully to what he's revealing to us in his suffering on the cross and the power of the resurrection and the wisdom and truth he gives us. Listen to him. In fact, the Greek word means to hyper here. I love that, to hyper here. Now, maybe I'm the only adult who's ever done this, but I've done it as a coach I've done it as a teacher, I've done it as a preacher, and I've done it as a dad, and I had it done to me as a kid. I found one of the most effective ways to get someone to listen to you is to start by getting them to look at you. Have you ever looked at your children and said, give me your eyes? And they're like, ah, give me your eyes. You see, when Heather and I first started dating, she didn't have to tell me to look at her because I didn't care if she was talking or not. She's cute. But when I look at her, I can listen to her more intently. And God is saying, did you see what I've revealed? Now listen. Now that your eyes are on Jesus, listen and do what he's asking you to do. Because the glory that should crush us now crushes him. So listen to what he's saying. And do what he asks. 
Oh, I know when I stand in front of an American audience and I say, we ought to obey Jesus 100%. I remember last week, Michael and I having the dialogue in front of you on stage where we talked about if he is who he says he is, then there's no part of our life that his lordship should not interact with. Which means from how you sleep and when you sleep and how much or how little you sleep and what you read and what you watch and what you eat and how you interact and what you do with your life, that there's no choice that he should not have complete voice in. Yet I know in an American audience, none of us want to give up that much control. But if you see Jesus and your eyes are open to who he is, you will gladly give up that much control because you know he's good and you know he's wise and you know what he could have done to you and chose not to. So what might he do for you instead of against you? You see, the glory of God no longer threatens to crush us. It just promises to crush him. The second thing that God said when God said to listen to him, this is my beloved son, is worship. Glory can also be translated beauty, not just weight and truth and wisdom. I don't, I don't know what to do with this yet. My study didn't allow me to go deep in this, but one day I think I'm going to have to study this on my own and go deeper, but... Uh, studying through the Old Testament prophets this year, and been in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and now Ezekiel, colors, something's being said about colors. Whenever a vision of God or the glory of God is displayed, especially in, in the prophecy of Ezekiel, colors explode, rainbows and sparks and lights. And then I think of Revelation. John has the revelation of the final kingdom coming down and, and reforming earth and landing here, and he uses colors, bright, vibrant colors. Something about the glory of God is so beautiful, it's breathtaking. I know you can watch year after year after year fireworks on the 4th of July explode in the sky, and you should be able to logically say to yourself, yeah, it's going to blow up, it's going to be bright, it's going to be done. But why are we all little kids with fireworks? I know the dude's just like blowing things up, but I mean when you're just watching... And the sky lights up with purple and silver and gold and it explodes. There's something mesmerizing about that and the Bible uses imagery like this. So not only is God telling us to obey him, but notice how beautiful he is. How stunning what he does is so different than anything else. So obey, worship, and let's read verses 10 through 13. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things, but I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Last week, Peter corrected Jesus. Jesus said, I'm going to go suffer, and Peter said, I won't let you. It's not right. You can't. This isn't what a Messiah does. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're not after God's will, you're after your own. And now the disciples come down, James, Peter, and John come down the mountain and they say, we saw Elijah, but wasn't there supposed to be Elijah, Malachi 4.4? Wasn't there supposed to be another Elijah that comes? And Jesus says, yeah, he came and they killed him. And it harkens back to that moment that Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And they said, we won't let you. And Jesus said, I'm going to. Just like John suffered and died to proclaim the message of the gospel, Jesus said, I will suffer and die and so will you. He's opening our eyes. So what are we supposed to do with this? We're supposed to obey. We're supposed to worship. And lastly, be patient. Because the disciples saw the transfigured, glorified Jesus, and Jesus looked at them and said, don't talk about this until we go to Jerusalem. 
Why? Because without the cross, the glory of Jesus threatens us. With the cross, it only threatens him. And his being crushed by the weight of glory was what he did on Calvary for us so that you and I would no longer be threatened by his glory but be welcomed into it. Church, do we have a good king or what? That we have someone who's good and kind and he tells us to be patient. Paul would write in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Notice that not only do we understand his glory because of the Calvary and because of the resurrection and because of his teachings and the truth of them and the Holy Spirit's leading, not only do we understand his glory, but Paul says we get to experience it instead of being threatened by it. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, now pay attention, this is where we began. If you dismiss the Old Testament in your understanding of the New Testament, I'm going to challenge you to say you may not understand the New Testament. Listen to what Paul does and how he equates things. And we all, with unveiled faces, Moses, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit understanding and opening our eyes to the glory of Jesus will lead us to obey. Opening our eyes and understanding the glory of Jesus will lead us to worship. And opening our eyes and understanding the glory of Jesus will lead us to patiently wait. So I've debated for the last 10 days, how do you close this teaching? I've got a question. In fact, I have a couple for you. Feel free to answer. Can you trust him? Now, There's people in the room who are like, I don't know. But listen to the voices. For those of you who can can attest to this, can you trust Jesus? Are his promises true? Has he ever given a promise in your life that he will not or has not fulfilled? Will you base your life on trusting that even I don't get it right now, I understand that he is good and he is wise and his glory is more powerful and weighty than anything I've ever experienced before. If the glory of Jesus and his sinfulness threatens you, get on your knees in front of him and watch him transfer his glory to your repentance. Watch and learn that you can trust him because he's revealed himself that he is not a reflection of God, he is God. And he has showed us the safety of his glory is found in his death for us and the hope of the resurrection that he gives every single one of us. Can we trust him? we can. His glory is for sure. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.